You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, and welcome to Fertility Docs Uncensored with another lovely episode with my two beautiful and brilliant colleagues, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hello. Thanks for describing me as beautiful because I don't look real beautiful right now. So I'm I'm glad that we can only, our listeners can only hear us and not see us, but... Abby always looks fantastic. Even when she has her gym clothes on, she looks fantastic. (laughs) To me, the two of you always look so put together and so organized. (laughs) Your hair is always pretty. You're always wearing, if not makeup, it looks like you're wearing makeup, which is even more obnoxious. Um, I mean, great. And you know, it just, there's, there's a small hint of jealousy and just pure admiration of how you pull that off because yeah, just fake it till you make it is what I say, you know, <laughs> I act like I'm put together, but I'm really not most of the time. So, <laughs> Hey, it totally works. Um, what are you guys up to? Are you planning, planning holiday stuff yet at all? Yes. Thanksgiving is coming around. I like Thanksgiving. It's good. However, my favorite, my two favorite Thanksgivings were the two that I didn't have to cook. So <laughs> that sounds totally legit to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I almost never cook. The one time I had some family that came to our house to eat Thanksgiving because I am a bit of a planner. I made like one casserole like every other day for like two weeks and froze it. And then I just brought them all out. It actually worked pretty well. The the turkey was prepared by someone other than me that I paid, actually. (laughs) My cousin comes over and we get everything done kind of the day before. And um, it's it's kind of a big family thing. And then, you know, it's the crazy, like, everything happens Thanksgiving morning. And then by like 2 o'clock, everybody's asleep. (laughs) Do, do Do you guys have something favorite that you'd like to make for Thanksgiving? So I usually, I'm the cook in our family for Thanksgiving. So I end up making pretty much all of it. Wow. What's your favorite though? Yeah. What's your favorite? Ooh, I'm a mashed potato girl and in a mac and cheese. I mean, if it's, if it's carbs, it's, um, we're buddies. Mm. Um, and actually I really like cranberry sauce, but only if it's homemade. What about you, Susan? What's your favorite to make? So my favorite is the stuffing because it's the stuffing I grew up with and it's a cornbread stuffing. And um, it's it's one of those things that every year it turns out a little bit different because it, it's not a recipe. Like it has certain ingredients, but sometimes we give or take a little something and um, it, it's been fun over the years. Like, honestly, I could live without turkey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm much more of a ham girl so we actually fix the turkey and a ham because i'm like leftover turkey that to me the only thing it's good for is soup <laughs> it's not bad in casseroles if you put enough gravy in there. okay good idea so i don't really like to cook but and i don't know that you would really call me that or tell me that i know how to bake but for thanksgiving i see that as the opportunity to explore some really like delicious chocolatey gooey caramely dessert so mm. my favorite thing to make is this, it's, I don't know if you call it a pie. It's almost like a cross between flan and a pie because what you do is you mix up all this like wonderful, just like chocolatey, like, I mean, it, it's gooey, almost 
almost gooey like a brownie and you you bake it like you you have to have a tray with water so you turn on the oven and you heat the water up first and then you like put a it cheesecake in. kind of like cheesecake yeah but it's chocolate and it's just like chocolate it's like eating almost like eating icing kind of like chocolate gooey icing that's like my favorite thing to make that sounds delicious mm. <laughs> my favorite thanksgiving so far is still this is before i was ever in charge of it but for college my college roommate came home with me one year and her parents came to my house and they were all from Montana. So they were delighted to go to Arizona and get out of the cold. And her, um, her dad was, uh, is a, an Episcopalian priest. And he's not just a priest, like he's, he's higher up in the, the church. And so we got, you know, got all the stuff Thanksgiving and my mom w- is not a cook in any way, shape or form. And so she ordered a turkey and it was supposed to be pre-cooked and you just put it in the oven for the last hour to heat it through. So the, the priest was in charge of finishing off the turkey and carving it. So he goes to carve it and it oh, turns nice. out they never cooked it. So oh, no. only, only the outer like half inch or so inch. I didn't know priests knew those words. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, it was really impressive. Um, but it was, that remains the best Thanksgiving we've had so far. <laughs> it's so funny to have this mostly frozen turkey that we, like we ended up microwaving the, just the outer parts of it to make sure it was cooked and pitching the rest of it. Cause it was just kind of a mess, but. All right. So frozen turkeys and delicious chocolatey caramely things aside, what is our question of the week? All right. Our question of the week is, is tracking your cycle worthwhile or feasible while you have an IUD? I'm not planning to start trying to conceive for another year or two, but a nurse practitioner told me to start tracking my cycle now. But my understanding is the IUD can cause some cycles to be anovulatory and this really wouldn't be possible. So, Abby, what do you what would you say? I would say that would be pretty challenging because when people talk about tracking their cycles, kind of the assumption is that you're having fairly regular menstrual cycles or at least menstrual cycles that you can actually see. A lot of patients with IUDs, and this may not be the case for our listener, but a lot of people with IUDs don't have periods at all because the IUD secretes hormones that thin the lining out. So you don't really even have a period. I mean, I guess in theory, if you are ovulatory, you can maybe try and use an ovulation predictor kit, but it would be really hard. I don't, I don't think I would recommend that. I think that would lead to lots of frustration. I bet the nurse practitioner is really referring to kind of the, the Paragard IUD, the one that doesn't secrete hormones. So if you have a Mirena or a Skyla, you're more likely to be anovulatory or at least have a little bit of, um, less functional cycles. Um, that, that would be harder. Now, if you have a Paragard, you should still be ovulatory and you could track your cycles and, and that type of thing. Um, but I, I think that, I think what the nurse practitioner is really trying to do is kind of get our listener to be kind of aware of what's happening. And I'm assuming the patient's having some sort of menstrual cycles. Um, but knowing that, you know, some people do ovulate, some people don't ovulate while having the IUD and, kind of go from there. What do you think, Carrie? I think it can be as high as 50%, particularly in the last few years of having a Mirena, which is in at this point, the most common IUD that we see. There's certainly plenty of others that are out there with the Paragard, which is copper and non-hormonal, the Skylo, which is smaller, the Kylina, I think is the Something like that, yeah. other little guy around. Um, I mean, at this point to our listeners, whenever we see an IUD, 
for the most part, our reaction is, well, let's take it out. Yeah, we take it out. <laughs> so we don't really, for the most part, put them in or deal with them besides pulling them out. But, um, you know, the in the later years of having an IUD, you are a little bit more likely to become ovulatory. Now, that doesn't impair its ability to prevent pregnancy because you still have the progesterone effect on the lining of the uterus, which thins it out um, and thickens up the cervical mucus so that it prevents sperm from getting in and makes it a more inhospitable environment. Um, it also can affect the the movement of the uh, cilia or tiny little hairs within the tube so that it makes it a little bit less likely for the, um, for the egg to come down. But, um, you know, but I would say overall, Moraine is probably the most likely you can still have ovulation with it, but I, I agree with the others. I think it's probably an exercise in futility. It is worthwhile to track what is going on so that you kind of know, um, if you're having bleeding, but I wouldn't, I would not spend a whole lot of energy on it. I think it would be really frustrating for my patients, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those that when you're in real time, you're going to be able to figure that out pretty darn quickly. That's what I think too. Yeah. So, okay. So our topic for today is where to find information besides with Dr. Google. And I don't know about you ladies, but one of the things that I, I frequently tell my patients is, stay away from Dr. Google because um, went to a really questionable medical school. And <laughs> I recently had one of my patients who, who was very kindly listening to the, the podcast after actually being referred to it by one of our prior speakers on the podcast. She said, yeah, I try and stay off of Google because every time I go on it, everything ends in death. And I thought that that was really a, a pretty fair assessment of all medical or things. Or a brain like tumor, usually. Death or a brain tumor. Death or a brain tumor. <laughs> there is no good thing. And so um, that made me think like, you know what, we really should address some of the more solid places outside of your physician's office that you can find information. Because I think pretty much all of us have had that experience where you get a call from your doctor's office and they say, you have XYZ, whether it's something related to fertility or you have something completely unrelated. And the first thing you do is you Google it. And the second thing you do is call your mother, husband, best friend crying because now you're going to die. Um, and so when you guys are talking to your patients, where are the places that you refer to that refer them to for solid information that gives them a good basis for either explaining things or further understanding what they're looking at or, or where do you send your patients? Well, one of the first places that I refer our patients to is um, our national society, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, which we call ASRM. Um, they have actually a fantastic website. And when you go to asrm.org, the first page you come, come to says patients or professionals. And so you can dive into the patient section that is really, really, I mean, it is the most intentionally made website for patients, in my opinion. Um, you know, this, everything there has been, you know, you're not going to get kind of false information and things are updated and, and it's put in a way um, that normal everyday people can understand the language that we're talking day to day. We know that we throw out a whole lot of acronyms. I mean, fertility, I mean, 
everything is a three word three letter acronym. It's alphabet soup. <laughs> it is alphabet soup. And so when you're trying to decipher the alphabet soup, like I totally understand why my patients go and look for additional information. Um, but I think that's a that's a very safe place to get some quality information. Well, I think it's also important, and to and there's several websites I think we want to talk about. But I think it's also important to talk about who you what websites you don't want to go to, and you know just remember on the internet. And I think most people know this now, although I'm old enough that when I started practicing, a lot of people didn't realize that what's on the internet's not always true. And I think most people realize <laughs> that now, fortunately. But um, but you know I think there's a lot of sites that you go on to, and people just remember people can make any kind of claim about a product or. Uh, you know, a medicine or a treatment. But just remember, unless it, unless we see randomized prospective studies, we generally are somewhat skeptical about claims that are made about certain things that will make you less fertile or more fertile, I mean. Um, and so one of the other sites I think that we commonly look at um, is the American College of OBGYN or Obstetrics and Gynecology. That's sort of our secondary governing body for all OBGYNs. And so I think it's pretty reliable when you look at information there, when they tell you something is reasonable to do, I think it's pretty reliable information. Um, So I think that's probably would be site number two, I would recommend. How about you, Carrie? So I'm actually going to go in the opposite direction and give a heads up for sites to be careful about. Um, and, And this is more when you're looking for, in part for how to find a fertility clinic, Um, because there are quite a few sites out there that are aggregate sites. And what they'll do is they'll, it'll be some kind of generic.com and it'll say, you know, look at this, this set of clinics in your area, that set of clinics in your area. And it looks like it's an independent third party site. That's not, that's not biased in any way. And what we find is that from the clinic side, and, and the, probably the best example of this is Yelp, um, where there's a really phenomenal article out um, in, I forget the, the news agency, but it was, the article is about a, a pizza agency or a pizza uh, place that refused to buy ads in Yelp. And as a result, they got totally tanked. And so they they made a reverse um, ad proposition for it and, and they gamed the system. And, and so in doing so, they kind of showed how it's not, not necessarily the most honest of systems. So you're um, saying that sites stack their reviews? I know. <laughs> Who knew that? Who knew that? It's, you know, in, you, you probably ought not go to just general, general sites for reviews to medical clinics because most lay people don't necessarily know everything and they can't tell you the full story, but there's a lot of other general sites that look like they're unbiased that, that aren't necessarily. And so I would say be really cautious of those because oftentimes there's a penalty if you're not paying. Right. So when you, when you're looking at some of these congregate aggregate sites that Carrie's talking about, realize that most of the people who participate in those types of things pay So clinics pay to get listed on those sites. So just because they're listed doesn't necessarily mean they're the best at anything. It may just mean they paid a fee. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, when you're, when you're on the airplane, not that anybody's on airplanes anymore, (laughs) but, 
But when you're on the airplane and you're looking at the Sky Mall magazine, isn't that what it's called? Or, or the other magazine, not the Sky Mall magazine, but but the in-flight magazine. You know what I'm talking about. The one that's on each airline and has a different title. Yes. It is the best magazine. <laughs> but the one and it it always has like these top doctors that those those people are paying for an advertisement. Okay. And so it, it's important to kind of understand that source. Um, another thing kind of on the, on the air of things to be warned about, and, and this is one of those kind of blessing and curses type things, is that I think that a lot of the fertility blogs serve a very, very, very important purpose in creating a community for our patients who feel very isolated and alone because it's very hard to go out and, you know, necessarily talk to your girlfriend or something like that about um, your fertility challenges and the emotional impact of it and things like that. But also realize that when you, when you look at those places and you're looking for medical advice, that there, there may be error in that advice. Sometimes it's good advice, but sometimes it's not. So it's just like if you're talking to your friend next door, just kind of take it with a grain of salt and, and realize that just because it's on a blog, um, it, it, it may not be medically true. Sometimes it's just that it doesn't apply to you. Um, and, and so really, I think mm-hmm. probably the default for all three of us is when we're really looking for information, we go to PubMed, P-U-B-M-E-D.org. And that is a free website where you can go and and take a look at all the scientific data that's been published on any given topic. Now, searching it is an art. (laughs) (laughs) We all laugh because it it is very true. And if there's only two people in the study, that's different if there's, you know, 100 people or 200 people as well. And and the words you're looking for are pretty much always going to be prospective randomized, preferably double-blinded trial, but I can live with prospective randomized. Um, and, and the larger the number of people who are participating, the better. And the other words that you want are peer-reviewed because that means that they're not relying on just anybody to say that this research is good. They're, it's, it's like me writing up a whole research protocol, doing a whole study, submitting it to a journal, and then the journal goes and without me knowing exactly who it is, the experts on the journal will then pass it off to Susan and Abby. They'll take my name off of it. So Susan and Abby don't know that they're reviewing my paper and they'll sit down and they'll go through it and they'll go, my God, what was this person thinking? Why did they do it like that? They should have done this. They should make this correction. They should have done this with their statistics. They should have done this with their patient population. They should have made these corrections. And ideally, every every paper goes through that. Now, not every journal works like that. Some are pay to play. Um, and But when you have a peer-reviewed article that's, that's perspective, meaning looking forward, not looking back where you're just rifling through the books that you already have. It's, it's looking forward and saying, okay, what if I just take whoever walks through the door and see what happens to them. What is it? What do we see? And and put them with different interventions, give them this med versus this med, what happens to them? And, and there's really set ways of how to do that. And so I would say that PubMed is really our gold standard of where to go for information. And, um, and I, I have never once gotten 
angry, annoyed, frustrated at a patient who brings me a PubMed article. I will, however, in deep down, I will not show it to you because I, I listen to patients, but, um, (laughs) you know, when someone brings me a, a random article off of Dr. Google, I'm like, this has no bearing in reality. And that's a lot harder to to argue because they think, well, you know, neighbor Susie said it, so it must be true. I'm like, no, no, let's let's look at the data. Let's let's let the data drive it as much as we can. Well, and I think I think it's great to do your own research. And you know, I, I you know, when I have a medical issue, you know, I'm a reproductive endocrinologist, so I don't know much about orthopedics, for example. So I look as well. Um, another site, by the way, is WebMD, and I've looked on that site before too. But, you know, just remember that, you know, we love when patients do their own research, but, you know, realize that we've had four years of obstetrics and gynecology training, and then an additional three years of infertility training. And, you know, we recommend something to you. You know, our job is to look at it and, and think about it in a scientific way and kind of be able to give you the synthesized information of what's important. And so, you know, I think whoever your doctor is, you should trust your doctor. And if you don't, you probably need to look somewhere else. But, you know, also value your doctor's opinion. And I think this is a little off topic, but, you know, certainly OBGYNs um, certainly are qualified to do fertility treatments. Um, I think you want somebody who's subspecialized in that, then you want to make sure that they're a reproductive endocrinologist and that they're board certified. But for, if you want somebody that's had a three-year subspecialty training in it, then you look for a reproductive endocrinologist generally. Mm-hmm. The other foundation to, to not discount is not, it's not just the four years of OBGYN and the three years of REI that we do. It's the four years of medical school prior to that where we get a foundation in, in all aspects of medicine. Um, and I have seen that to be very, very useful when talking with, you know, other colleagues who do more focused, you know, just three years in, um, in a, you know, a, a different type provider pathway. Those four years of medical school really help. Like to be able to, to be an REI and, and still remember, oh yeah, that's how the kidney works and it does this and this and this. And that's how the anesthesia goes. And this is how the heart works. And even though the heart is above the belt and really, I don't care, but um, I do care. Like I want it to keep beating <laughs> and be healthy, especially during the nine month stress test that is pregnancy. But, um, but that's really helpful. And so um, what are the other websites that you guys like and refer to when your patients are looking for for help after hours. So if you are taking any of the common fertility medications, especially the ones that are like any of the injectable medications, um, a lot of those actual websites have a, a lot of good information for patients. Um, the, those websites usually have um, pretty good videos, which I think is almost the most valuable parts of the website for, you know, when you're stuck at home and you're like, oh no, I have like this plethora of drugs and there's bottles and there's Q-caps. What the hell is a Q-cap? <laughs> like, why do we call it a Q-cap? And, you know, all, all these things and what has to be refrigerated and what doesn't. Um, those, those websites are, are good sources of information when you're, when you're in a pinch. And I think one of the frustrating things for myself included and my patients is that there's a lot of data out there. There's a lot of information that we don't know. There's thousands of things that have to happen for the egg and the sperm to go together. And 
you know, sometimes I'll, I'll talk to patients and I'll say, well, we want to check your husband's sperm count. We want to check your fallopian tubes. Um, we want to check your egg number through AMH. And those are some of the most basic tests. And there's not a ton of other tests out there because a lot of patients, I think, get frustrated that, well, we've done these tests and they're normal. So why don't you keep doing more tests? Why don't you keep looking? And, and a lot of times there's just not other tests to do to figure out what's wrong. It doesn't mean we can't do treatment to try and improve, improve your chances. But just because we're not doing thousands of tests on you, it doesn't mean that they, that they exist out there and that we're not doing them. Good thoughts, everybody. So it sounds like just to kind of recap that the go-to websites are ASRM.org, which stands for the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Mm -hmm. There's the ACOG.org. So that's A-C-O-G.org website. And that's the American is it College or Congress. I never remember. College. Obstetricians, gynecologists. And then there's PubMed.org. And then there's there's WebMD, which is really nicely put together. Um, did I miss any? Are there any others that we talked about? And we talked about, we didn't talk about the CDC website, but that has helpful information as well, I think. Yeah. I think the CDC is, is probably the most helpful of the reporting agencies just because everyone is required to go to that one as opposed to the SART website, mm-hmm. which is also good. But again, you have to you have to pay to be a part of that. Well, we'll have another episode about SART and CDC. Yeah, we should do that. We should. Well, to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more and be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We would love to hear from y'all. You can also visit us at fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment. Um, And also we want you to submit specific questions that you have about infertility. All right. We will see y'all soon. Bye, everybody.